0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch.
1: Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: It's the Wonky Show. We're talking about the Spring Statement, a new strategy for UKRI and social mobility it's all coming up
3: than students might necessarily be so even if they think oh we don't care you, you know this, is, this is just these are just costs that students and/or new graduates are going to have to bear the reality is, is that is that cash gets filled from somewhere else and from someone else and 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 that is going to hurt politically <music>
2: the wonky show your weekly way into this week's higher education news policy and analysis i'm wonky's editor-in-chief mark leach and joining me are three brilliant guests as usual to help unpack the week's goings on in he in harfordshire it's andy westwood professor of government at the university of manchester andy you're hired to the week please
3: oh well morning mark my highlight is, uh, is probably uh, yesterday i spent most of the day in oldham where we launched a, an economic review of oldham which um we've been working on for about the last six or seven months with uh uh, with the council and with uh, Alan Francis who's the chair of who's the chief exec of the, the local FE College. So that was all all really good fun actually.
2: In Chepster it's Jenny Shaw, Higher Education External Engagement Director at Unite Students. Jenny, your highlight of the week, please.
4: Hi Mark. Well, you know how much I love a podcast. So my highlight of the week has actually been how much podcasting I've managed to fit in this week. So as well as being on the Wonky Show, which I always love, I've also been guest presenting Accommodation Matters. And I've even managed to fit in my own podcast as well. So it's been audio heaven for me this week.
2: And in isn't it Sunday, Blake Wonke's Associate Editor. Sunday, your highlight of the week, please? Uh,
5: my highlight of the week was going to the UK Policy Away Day. Um, and they're doing some really fantastic work and looking at some really progressive policy developments. Um, but they also had homemade lemon drizzle cake, which was uh, a really nice touch. <laughs> so
2: let's start with the spring statement. Uh, Andy, talk us through the highlights or, or the lowlights.
3: Yeah, well, there are there are more of the latter than the former. Um, I should start by saying, kind of, the spring statement is 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 the lesser of the two big fiscal events of the year. So,
2: and it still sounds wrong to say, doesn't it, the spring statement? Because it was always the autumn statement and the budget in the spring. And this this does make more sense to do it this way round. But I just I can't. It doesn't roll off the tongue. The spring statement.
3: No, no, and it doesn't. It doesn't. However much you might think it's worth having a, a sort of lesser, smaller one, which is just an update, which is what this is meant to be. It, uh, events not least at the moment around the world kind of conspire against you and it means that sort of a, a, a small finish update suddenly looks quite inadequate when you look at all the things that uh, uh, people are confronted with you, you know whether that's in the kind of tensions globally around around Ukraine and its consequences or the or the not unconnected cost of living crisis at home so there's there's, a, there's always a real worry that kind of you know however much you want to plan what you're going to tell the world or what you're going to tell the country about your fiscal plans, that that, that doing a, a a deliberately sort of smaller, briefer one isn't going to quite fit the um, demands of the time. And I think that's definitely been the case with uh, yesterday's event. And it's, I think it was very notable that very, very quickly, even amongst the um, newspapers and media and columnists that, that would typically support uh, uh, the, the, the kinds of approaches that Rishi Sunak set out were pretty critical pretty quickly. So so I think it's, a, it's, a, it's not going down that well, but it, uh, it, it had a lot to try and confront. I mean, the headlines are you know 5p off a liter of fuel which doesn't doesn't really go hugely uh, uh far in 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 any sort of sense um and the plan to take uh, a penny off income tax in 2024 so if nothing else we can all set our our diaries for May 24 as the time of the next general election so that's that's a, a something we can we can kind of note i guess the most the most interesting things for us from a, from a higher education perspective actually go back to the lecture that Rishi Sunak gave, um, the Mays lecture a couple of weeks ago, where he, he he really sort of set out his own kind of take on the economy and where, where it's weak and where it should go, and kind of focused on, on these these three ideas of capital, people, and ideas. And he riffed a bit on that in the spring statement yesterday and landed in two very specific areas that that... Uh, are might only be seen as peripherally interesting to the to the to the kind of higher education commi- uh, um, community but are actually directly very interesting and uh, it, and will be something that we need to watch out as they do the work the first is is the expansion of r&d tax credits or or the review and expansion so they're going to fine-tune those and and Spending, government spending on that has gone up and up and up, but the, the actual impact on employer spending has been pretty negligible. And compared to the rest of the OECD, businesses still spend a lot less on R&D than other countries. So how that, how that gets um, reformed come the autumn will be very significant. And then the other, not unconnected, uh, is, is the promise to reform tax arrangements to support more employee training, Now, a lot of the headlines say that's about the apprenticeship levy, and that's obviously a central part, but it's not the only part. What Sunak diagnoses, both in the May's lecture and in the spring statement, is that we don't do enough of that either, uh, very low compared to other countries, and that that's, you know, if you want to get capital people ideas sorted, you've got to get that functioning. So he's going to put more effort into what the tax arrangements are that support that. Interestingly, uh, not a lot of mention of uh, uh, the lifelong Loan entitlement, or the, uh, the the policy that we might have spent most time thinking about, and so I think it's quite it's quite interesting to see how he talks about R and D and how he talks about adult skills, and they're very different. They're very different to the way Bayes or UKRI talk about R and D. They're very different to the way that universities talk about R and D. And the same really goes for all the adult training stuff. You know, we tend to think it's going to come in the form of a. A lifelong lo- uh, lifelong learning uh, set of policies and actually he's starting from the tax system and from firms so some some really interesting areas for us to sort of think about well what does that mean for us as well as what does that mean for those different areas of policy that we're perhaps more uh, familiar with so um we'll find out in due course
2: fascinating and i mean one of the other bit the the, the well, part of the criticism of the of the statement has been about its failure to deal with the cost of living crisis, isn't it? And there is clearly going to be a crunch on students. I mean, graduates, the other kind of the flip side of the, uh, the statement was the, the, the fiscal headroom that the Chancellor had to, to make the changes that he made, the headline changes. Um, a lot of that turns out to be on the back of making graduate repayment much more punitive. <laughs> that, the you know, the, the stuff that was announced back at the, uh, the, the auger response a few weeks ago. So you've got to, We've got a bit of a squeeze coming, haven't we? we've got a less fair deal for graduates and then students who are going to be hit quite hard by this cost of living crisis.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, 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 gonna, it's, already, it's already hitting students. It's already hitting higher education. And, and, and that's, that's absolutely exacerbated by the rise in inflation. And that, that's probably the other big theme of the spring statement, that it's expected to peak at 8.7%. I mean, these are levels of inflation that we've not seen since the 70s, um, but the average this year is going to be 7.5%. Now, all of that means that whether it's students' money um, or all the repayment arrangements uh, are going to get uh, harder and tougher very quickly. But of course, it also means that, uh, that the university's income, and you think back to the kind of freezing of the fee for the rest of the parliament, that 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 uh, inflation at that rate is gonna is gonna rapidly rapidly erode the the value of the fee, which obviously ties universities hands to spend money on all sorts of different things, whether it's teaching and learning or pensions or or whatever else they want to.
2: Yeah, I mean, actually, I I, I call it a double whammy. It's actually a triple whammy, isn't it? Because you've also got, you've got, you've got students with less money paying more back, um, over their lifetime for a less good experience because universities are going to have less money spent. I mean, Sunday that, um, Jim's analysis on the site this week is really interesting, isn't it? Because he kind of identifies that squeeze. And the, the other thing, you know, people forget that, that, you know, many students will be classified as, um, low, you know, low income and, uh, that because of their basket of goods, they're going to be hit really, really hard by, by inflation.
5: Yeah, I mean, so I I would recommend reading both DK and Jim's um, pieces on the site, um, just to like get a really good orientation of of, of how this is impacting students and graduates. Um, obviously, you know, things like five P of fuel, you know, DK makes the point that okay some students are some students have cars but not many and as for graduates well um you know can't most graduates uh live in in inner cities you know there's even no point in having a car you can't afford a car but I think the thing of the cost of living and young people is that um I feel like at the moment everyone's sort of everyone's assuming that it's a sort of individual um detriment so this idea of like young people having to tighten their belts a little bit you know maybe cook more at home you know there's that kind of trope of the avocado on toast or whatever but actually this is going to have like serious implications on things much further afield than just the sort of individuals luxuries um because if you put this into the context of the pandemic and i don't want to say post-pandemic because i think we're still sort of navigating it but you know obviously we do have more at-home jobs and um You know the potential for more lockdowns or restrictions means that young graduates or graduates will be working at home, and what I've seen is a lot of people uh, having to access their working space within their homes. But their homes are shared housing or not not the most optimal space in which to work, and that's because obviously they're trying to save money. And student, sorry, uh, graduates can't work in houses of six or seven 25 year olds right especially if they're in loud built up areas um, and i feel that this is being made out to be a sort of individual cost of living but this will have repercussions on like lots of things on output of output of work for organisations on performance on retention rates on knock on time and money spent potentially spent on recruitment you know we when we talk about a cost of living in a pandemic or post-pandemic world, we're not talking about the space that people go home to. We're talking about the space that a lot of critical work is taking place that upholds the country and the economy. So it's it's not just, oh, well, graduates are going to have to maybe not take a holiday this year. It's that we've got an infrastructure set up where people need to pay to have space in, in their home environment that graduates can't afford to like attain and work in. Um, so the, the sort of siphoning off of, oh, well, this is hitting graduates and it's, it's hitting them, you know, in terms of like having to pay a bit more. That is true. And obviously, like, I feel that we should, there should be sort of solidarity there, but it is going to have knock on impacts, like across across the country in 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 wider ways
2: jenny i i don't want to tiptoe around the, the point that i mean you work for a you work for one of the the largest student accommodation providers in the country, and i know you're you've got kind of broader concern of about about students and their experience and their being, and but but i mean are you worried about how students are going to afford accommodation on a basic level
4: yeah I mean I think there is a a, a wider uh, position here and I, I I think like sunday the the thing that really stood out to me was that sort of generational effects so I think that's the wider context Um, we've got some data from the NUS some new data from the NUS about the uh, student cost of living and uh, some really alarming stats in there and I think it is concerning that there's been no review of the student maintenance package despite the recommendations and the auger review and that the planned rises in the package are not going to keep pace with the cost of living Um, In in terms of accommodation well I suppose there's, you know, students want and students deserve to have, you know, a, a good uh, quality, well maintained, safe environment, and, you know, there there is going to always be a sort of minimum cost to be able to to do that, and, you know, to do it in a non-damaging way to the planet, and do it in a way where you pay your staff fairly. So that the, you know, there's a, a point below which you you can't go as an accommodation provider, and it's it is a systemic issue. It's it's not something that, you know, anyone can um address on their own but it's it's very much on everyone's minds within the accommodation
3: sector i know that um, and, and, and
2: what have you, and what should universities be doing specifically the question to all three of you
3: i i, I think uh, i mean one of the interesting things about the politics of all of this of course the impact the impact on on students is is very very significant and the impact on universities as i say from from that uh, declining value of, of of the fee and other uh, other sources of income. I keep thinking back to that slide that Mark Corver presented at your uh, recent Wonky Conference, where he showed if, if, if you modelled the, the value of the fee in real terms um, at the sorts of inflation rates that, that we are now beginning to get used to, it, it disappears. South very very quickly. Um, yeah, so so you know all of those long term plans that, that universities or even medium term plans, you, you, you know, are pretty worthless. Um, but I also think that I mean the politics of of the budget and and this is and and the next election, of course, is that whether it's accommodation or or additional costs of study because those costs don't go away. Uh, it, it falls on on largely on kind of parental contributions or on students having to do other things. And uh, so, so it hits other people too. And you might think that those are uh, more likely to be in the target voting markets for conservative governments than students might necessarily be. So even if they think, oh, we don't care, you, you know, this is this just these are just costs that students and or new graduates are going to have to bear. The reality is is that is that cash gets filled from somewhere else and from someone else, and 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 that is going to hurt politically.
5: I do wonder if there's like, there's room for transparency around the cost of living in, um, like, rec- in student recruitment, because one of the things that I get quite frustrated about, uh, when we're talking about, um, students, uh, cost of living, uh, or, or just like the, how expensive it is to go to university and, you know, some, some really difficult decisions that students have to make around the source of their income. Um, and, one, one thing that frustrates me a lot around how much it costs to go to university is, is, the, is the, the sort of relentless focus on, on fees, which, you know, <laughs> it, for, for, for the large part of students going to university, that is something that they are paying off after university. It's not something that they're sort of going to work and earning money for and balancing their studies. You know, that that's all about the cost of living. And <laughs> it's really funny because when you If you're looking, say, say if you're looking to move somewhere and you've got, you're looking at like a flat, right? And it says, um, the cost of rent, but then underneath it has like, you know, the bills and the council tax and it says all the figures there. And as far as I'm aware, that's not something that students really get given like when they're making decisions around like where to live and which institution to go to. And I don't think that that I wouldn't advocate that as a as a good way of matching up candidates with institutions like at all. But it's almost getting to the point where you feel like that should be happening because it it's it's so that the applicant can make like the most informed decision around where they go. Um I don't want that to ever be the situation that we're in, but at the moment, it feels like that's that's the best way. That's the that's the fairest option for for the current situation that we're in.
4: Yeah, I I really liked Jim's analysis on on um, the blog this morning, where he sort of differentiated between just about getting by as a student and you know the sort of the quality of life that helps you get the most out of your experience. I thought that was really important because the debates about this tend to be a little bit black and white. A bit, you know, either students are being profligate with their money. And I, th- I think uh, Sunday you mentioned avocado on toast and all that sort of thing. Or, you know they, they're sort of in poverty. And I think that that middle band around, you know, having a good quality experience where you're going to get the best from your time is really important. I wanted to come back on the point that you mentioned, Andy, as well, about parents and parental contribution, because it is a feature of our system within the UK that parents are expected to contribute. I just want to say that we've got some polling coming out quite soon on not just students and cost of living, but also their parents as well. So I think that's going to Shed some interesting light on that.
2: On the um, on the politics, I mean, one of the things that c- c- continues to get my go, and, and it really has done in the last couple of months more than it has in the in the, for, for a long time, is this sort of lack of honesty in the political arena about how we treat students and graduates. And when the government keeps changing the, the, the kind of the levers on the dial with things like graduate repayments, and particularly now how it's you know extended to forty years, so essentially your your entire working life. You know, it behaves it kind of looks like a graduate tax, and the treasury is kind of using it that in that way as well so we'll, we'll raise we'll raise essentially we'll raise taxes on graduates to pay for you know money off um, you know, pensioners' fuel costs or whatever but they don 't ever frame it that way and what 's really dishonest about this is that it is a political choice, and you know by by any by any sensible measure the chancellor needs to to you know when he 's on his feet at um the dispatch box needs to needs to say well you know this year we're going to be prioritizing pensioners and uh and 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 I'm afraid to say that means you know it's going to be a tough times for graduates um but, but but because but then we find that out in the red book afterwards it's never ever it's never ever framed that way but it's you know it's it's, it's essentially it's almost like they think no one's going to notice but they do i mean it's in the, it's in every every single newspaper the ifs mentioned it it's in the ft i mean you know it is noticed by people who pay attention to these things isn't it
5: yeah i think the dishonesty also like extends to you know when the department of education is making sort of big big uh, statements um, around student mental health and i sort of think you know how ha, ha, like sh- it's not <laughs> students notice it you know students are the ones reading the newspapers and seeing the headlines around the impact it's going to have on them and I don't understand where this kind of like detached thinking has come up where you know universities have to be doing lots to help student mental health but you know puppies and student unions and extra well-being appointments are only going to go so far when you're studying under a system that essentially you've signed up to a extra lifelong tax and you need to make that worth your while and the absolute like strain and stress that you're under especially if you come from a a disadvantaged background like that that is going to have an impact on your mental health like beyond like almost anything else like that the absolute pressure that students are under um You know there is so much pressure for students to get a first class degree, and then it's not just good enough to have a first class degree. You also have to have a master's, and in fact, it's not just good enough to have a master's. You have to have a distinction in your master's. You know, and it's sort. I sort of sit here thinking, how how can you make these statements around student mental health while simultaneously crippling that mental health under such like a pressurized system to to make the most out of a lifelong tax that you're going to be paying off for the rest of your working life like i don't think that they quite appreciate or maybe they do they just won't ac- publicly acknowledge the absolute stress that people are under under that system
2: uh, and do you think it would this would be better if the chancellor had to stand up and set the set fees and graduate repayment levels and all, all the rest on an annual basis at, at, on budget day or in the spring statement or, or wherever
3: yeah i think i think I think, it, I think it would be and i think um i think if we think back to when when the the foundations of the current system were set that's that was the intention or something pretty close to that and uh, and i think it it's, it does it does sort of push at one level it it, it just shows that over the next uh, 5 10 15 20 40 years the government is going to fund less uh less higher education than it had in the past inflation is going to make that even less um and uh and so, so other other people or things are going to have to step into that gap now of course for lots of people and for lots of students there is nothing to step into that gap and that's where some of the the real pressures and tensions come in but at one level um you kind of you can you can imagine them being quite honest about that saying well we don't want to spend more money on higher we spend too much we want to spend less that's a you know that's a good thing the state has a uh, a, a reduced role in in lots of things and that's a, a a fundamental kind of conservative view that rishi sunak set out in the may's lecture so um at one level you can imagine them being relatively transparent about that but but rather less transparent and it does it does mean it's much more subject to sort of the smoke and mirrors of how you choose to present these things at the time um, it, it It absolutely doesn't doesn 't kind of set out those issues or the government 's position in those issues, and it really tries to sort of disguise it by by kind of not admitting that they exist and that the impact is is, is as significant as it is now whether you're you know whether you 're an eighteen nineteen year old in, in your first year or thinking of going off to university this year or whether you 're the parent of that eighteen to nineteen year old or the employer of that eighteen to nineteen year old you know, this This has a massive impact on all of you. Um, and, um, you, you know, we may as well be honest about it, If, if, if even if government isn't being.
2: Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week.
1: I'm Felicity Mitchell, the independent adjudicator for higher education. As you might expect, the subject of my blog is student complaints. I've been looking at what the OIA has been seeing as we approach the second anniversary of the first COVID lockdown. I look at the sometimes bumpy return to -to face-to-face learning, how important it is not to lose accessibility gains along the way, and the possible cumulative effect of industrial action and COVID-related disruption. And I look at the crucial importance of student support services, including disability support and student advice, and how investing in those services can pay dividends in helping students through their studies, but also in de-escalating potential complaints and resolving them early. I look at the benefits a kinder approach to complaints can bring for students and providers, and also for our own case handlers. And I take a look forward at what the patterns of complaints might be this year and how we approach them.
2: Now, UKRI is out with a new five-year strategy. Sunday, talk us through
5: it. Okay, so UK Research Innovation has published its first five-year strategy, setting out objectives in six key areas. So it is um, people and careers, places, ideas, innovation, impact, and then UKRI as an organisation. And it's sort of broad aims of this is to enhance diversity and connectivity in the research ecosystem so that's by fostering collaboration across disciplines sectors um, geographic location and basically developing and recognizing a greater breadth of skills um, then they're going to invest in five key themes um so net zero health and well-being infectious disease uh security and resilience and disparities in opportunities and outcome um and the idea of this is to leverage the uk's competitive advantage um with like increased investment in innovation um there is a plan to sort of stimulate private investment in research and also achieve a 2.4% of uh, GDP investment in in research and development by 2027. I think that the important part of this or to me the important part is um the sort of like flexibility and diversity of research careers Um so the current system obviously uh Uh, they wrote in their strategy has got two narrow measures of success and excellence and does um undervalue some skills that actually do contribute to sort of research more broadly and i think that the cross-sector mobility is really important as well because i was wondering how much this would interplay with the sort of current exodus of people leaving academia um you know there's not really one day on twitter where i don't see a sort of announcement of someone saying i'm i'm leave in academia so i think that you know a strategy that strengthens ties with other sectors which you know these sort of really great minds might be going into could be really good for the haiti sector at large um because i do sort of panic about the sector a little bit when i see these announcements almost every single day
2: fascinating fascinating um andy i'm old enough to remember the nurse review that that led to the creation of uk in, in the first place and in 2015 and um Things have changed quite a bit since then, haven't they? In terms of how the government sees research and how it kind of treats it treats science in, in particular.
3: Yeah, it has, and, and I think we should we should acknowledge straight off that the UKRI strategy isn't the same thing as the government strategy for R and D. And and if we look at if we look at the spending settlement between now and the end of the Parliament, which as we know is a pretty good one, um, the the government now call uh, the the core research budget. Uh, with basically, not not everything that UKRI have got, but largely what UKRI control, i.e., the, the research councils, um, and uh, uh, and and the core research budget also includes includes uh, QR QR money that's allocated. But that that's five point nine billion, and the government by twenty twenty four twenty five will be spending twenty billion a year so you know this this isn't the <laughs> this isn't the first word or even the last word on on what government wants to do with r&d and that takes us a little bit back to the conversation about the treasury and and rishi sunak obviously ukri also control innovate uk funding which is going up quite significantly but that sort of you, you can't really get a grip on that in this strategy or i i struggle to sort of uh, spot that but the point being that uh, as as debbie writes in in her blog on the site that all of this stuff is coming from outside of UKRI and this, this rather undermines the vision that Paul Nurse had for it. It's, it, it isn't the only place. It's, it's proportion of the overall spending is getting smaller, not bigger. It's, it's importance as the strategic kind of home of what you do with uh, R&D in, in the UK is less significant than it was when it was created. And, and government is happier to kind of dish out cash in the ways that it wants to dish out cash, either through things like ARIA or to individual government departments whose budgets are also increasing very significantly. And it all goes back to that point, you know, that point that Sunak made yesterday about wanting to catalyse business R&D and to grow the economy that way. And and and, and that that really isn't, if, if it is in the strategy, it's it's buried very deeply within it. So again, I think the lesson for universities is don't, and, and the research community is, don't believe this is the only. This is the only thing that matters because it it very clearly isn't.
2: I mean, it it is not it a bit more than that in that in that government is directing research and science policy in a much more direct way than than Paul Nurse imagined they might when UKRI was set up. As much UKRI now seems to be handing out a slice of that government spending as you say, Andy. It's it's not you know it is it's a small slice compared to the overall the overall pie. But is UKRI becoming more of a kind of more classic funding agency than um, what was imagined, which would be a, something much more organic that, that led the research community.
3: Yes, yeah, so gov- government is dictating where more of the R&D budget is being spent than it, than it ever has, either as a proportion or as, a, as a, a, an overall amount. Um, and UKRI's strategic position in that, I think, is somewhat, well, a long way short of that which Nurse envisaged. And I think the danger is that is that we don't we we don't appreciate that we think we think UKRI and the funds that it sits above alongside uh, QR and the REF. We think that that is that is still what the government thinks about R and D, and it absolutely isn't. <laughs> it's just it's just uh, the bit that we're most used to in universities. It's the bit that kind of you know people are promoted on the basis of, or that uh, uh, universities kind of get income largely from when actually the, the government's agenda on R&D is much, much bigger and much more broader. And we're in danger, I think, of, of missing, <laughs> missing a lot of those boats as they, uh, as, they, um, kind of, um, as they sort of roll out over the next few years.
2: Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? And here to set this week's correlation question is Wonkies Associate Editor, David Kernahan.
0: Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? The podcast segment that will not let it lie. This time I'm looking at the 2018 19 graduating cohort, taking the number that started at each provider on a foundation year in 2015 16 and plotting it against the proportion of UK graduates in full time employment that agree or strongly agree that they were using the skills that they had learnt. This is all plotted as usual by provider. Is there a link between foundation years and skilled employment? Does it correlate?
3: Uh, I'm I'm going to say it doesn't correlate because because um, it's so foundation year. Um, uh, my suspicion is that is that it um, it's it's going to be people that are, are obviously the kind of entry profile people going into foundation years, the kinds of courses and universities that they they tend to be at. I think there will be less of a link between generally between them and kind of like market outcomes so i i i'm gonna say no
5: i'm gonna say yes (laughs) Uh, the reason i'm gonna say that it does correlate is because students on foundation years like in order to take a foundation year you have to have made like a deliberate choice around what skills you do and don't have before you even embark on your degree so i'm gonna say that the applicant uh, deliberation and uh, decision making is more targeted towards their skills and educational outcome and then employment outcome so i'm gonna say that yes it does correlate i'm gonna say i don't know but i i like
4: andy my first thought was it is going to be driven by the profile of the institutions and the courses that are offering a foundation year
0: The answer is no, not even slightly. Indeed, the line is almost completely flat, suggesting that providers with a large number of students who start higher education with a foundation year are not likely to see any detriment from this in skilled graduate employment reports. Data is from the HESA student and HESA graduate outcomes collections, and where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it
2: here out with a social mobility index of universities Jenny Talk us through.
4: Yeah, so Professor David Phoenix has uh, just published the second iteration of his English social mobility index. So it's a it's a metric. It's I suppose it's a a new kind of ranking really based on uh, what some people are calling the added value uh, of a course, but David Phoenix rightly calls it the the extent to which universities are enabling their students to achieve, because of course students are not passive in all of this. So it draws on things like the indices of multiple deprivation, it also looks at earnings uh, a year after graduation, it looks at continuation rates, so it's it's actually quite a simple measure but I I think it's quite powerful. Um, What was really surprising to me, and I'm sure to others, uh, but quite encouraging, is the diversity of introduce, sorry, start that again. What was really surprising to me but and I think to others as well but very encouraging was the diversity of institutions that made it to the top 10. So you might uh, expect that it would be a particular type of institution, but actually there's three Russell Group universities there, 2 million plus institutions and just in those top spots a real mix of pre and post 92 institutions. So Really challenging the idea that only certain parts of the sector can contribute to social mobility, and uh, one of the findings I think that um, both Happy and David Phoenix were keen to point out is that all universities are making a big contribution to social mobility. So, what I hope this will do really is is make social mobility feel more achievable for a wider range of institutions. I hel- I think it might help refine theories of change around access and participation, which have been very, very slowly evolving over the last 20 years.
5: I think one one, one of the, the, because there was a lot of, so originally when the first sort of like metrics were used and brought out, there was a lot of discussion on social media around, um, and actually I I think if I remember correctly that um, he, uh, David Phoenix actually um, mentioned this in his uh his sort of ex- explainer blog um but it's the idea that uh it's it, it, i can't remember the exact term he used but he said that it's a very difficult ask to talk about upward social mobility, because upward social mobility for some means that there's downward sociability. And I really hate the term downward social mobility, because downward social mobility does not have the same impact on individuals as upward social mobility. And there is this misconception that 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 for disadvantaged students to do well, students with advantage have to become disadvantaged. But they're saying that on the basis that they don't go into a high paying graduate job. But that doesn't mean that they suddenly lose all the advantages that they had in life. Like they before they went to university, they still had family on a high income. They still had good social connections. And the idea that because someone from a disadvantaged background goes into a high high paying graduate job, that someone who went to private school, is suddenly living an impoverished life just is not true. And I really hate the conversation around it, especially when, you know, and I talk about this book a lot, because it's a very good book, and everyone should read it. But if you look at the Class Ceiling um, by Sam Friedman, that they talk about how Uh, students from advantaged backgrounds can go into university and get a 2-2 and they will still get they will still have like a very comfortable income uh, compared to students from disadvantaged backgrounds on a first and that isn't to do with the university, that's to do with all the connections that they had before they went to university. So I really think that we need to reframe this narrative away from where we're switching out rich students and poor students and all they're doing is switching places because it's so much more complex than that. And it really does a disservice to all the great work that um, in participation and social mobility does.
4: It does beg a lot of questions, doesn't it? Like, you know, is it a zero sum game? And, you know, and, and uh, you know, what, what are we trying to achieve as a society? Are we trying to achieve sort of everyone rising to this mythical top? Or are we looking at reducing wealth inequality? So there's there's a lot behind it. But it's actually it is quite a good uh, antidote to some of the traditional rankings that include things like how hard is it to get into this institution and so on. So it's, uh, you know, I, I think it does that very well.
3: Yeah, I think Jenny's right. It's um, I think the what's quite nice about this is 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 that uh, well, normally you know you get your rankings and it's like oh yeah, whatever. Um, but this one, this one is actually quite you know it's 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 trying to do something different and uh, and it does it and it means we have a conversation about different types of institutions and different places and and I think that's quite healthy and and I think the value. Um, yeah, i mean sunday you, you know you're absolutely right to, to to unpack sort of what social mobility upwards and downwards really means um but um because we know it's such a key objective of the government it's quite nice to see a table like this and a ranking like this actually say well look on your terms look at what look at what these different institutions do and it's it, it's great to see bradford and aston and and uh uh you know and kind of Salford and Newman and, and others uh, in the in the uh, in, in the kind of top ten, and it's it's really I mean what I really like is that it, it forces us to have a conversation about place because you you know this shows what 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 less fashionable <laughs> I use that term guardedly uh, but uh, places like 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 Bradford Wolverhampton Bolton Salford you, you know Stoke. What what um, what? Leveling up essentially needs to mean in those places, and that we need to take that seriously. And the role of institutions like these there, but it also shows, and this is where leveling up and inequality meet. That um, you know, there's a bunch of institutions right across the sector in London who are dealing with the effects of massive inequality in a very different type of economy and labour market, and they're dealing with it very successfully. Whether it's Queen Mary or the LSE or or, or London South Bank, or, or, or Brunel, or Greenwich.
5: So, I, I, I totally appreciate your point on. Uh, I think you mentioned a, sort of a handful of Midlands and Northern institutions, but, um, you know, and their role in in leveling up. But, it, like, I do have to point out that 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 regional levelling up impact is only felt if the institution if the area retains the graduates and we know that a lot of rural universities and campuses they do have massive graduate hemorrhages and I say hemorrhages if it's a bad term they have a graduate exodus to you know to London uh, or up north it's to Manchester and um, I think I mean I think you're right but like obviously this this isn't looking at graduates that stay in the locality it's looking at graduate outcomes we we don't know where those graduates are right and they and and i think one of the one of the big issues with sort of like town gown divides or like you know student uh, like, like when when locals are are not you know, f- feel a resentment towards students is this idea that students come, they, they gain all this knowledge and skills and then they take it elsewhere, they take it to London. So I think we have to be really careful about looking at sort of the 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 positive impacts on the individual students from an institution compared with the positive impacts of for the region sorry
3: <laughs> but well look I, let me just i, I agree and, and you're right that the, the methodology here doesn't doesn't capture that but you know the particular institutions that are in the list we do we do know from other data that whether it's bradford or wolverhampton or Teesside, that that you know they do retain much more of their graduates in the local area much more of their their uh, undergraduates come from the local area and then stay there afterwards. So, so I think we can we can apply a level of that beyond the methodology. Um, and and I think equally within within London that kind of inequality that I talk about within London uh, and and other parts of the southeast, um, we can apply it in a different way. You know, we know we know that London retains more of its graduates, but it's significant that the um, um, you know that that they're the, recruiting from areas of of. Uh, uh, multiple deprivation and kind of taking people into the into those uh, levels of income, in, in, in albeit within the kind of London, the London labour market. You know that journey still matters. Yeah. So I think yeah. you know you're right, you're right. But 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 we can use this to kind of illustrate a, li- a little bit more about what we know about those yeah. institutions and places.
5: No, that's a really good point. I, I I like what you're saying about methodology and what I actually liked about this report. Uh, was more more so than the content of the report was the way did you see the comparison columns where they showed uh social mobility index based on one one methodology and then based on another and i i i found that because i'm sad i found that really exciting because i thought like this just demonstrates how sensitive our league tables are to the metrics that we put in and those metrics are based on the values of the people constructing the league tables and i was like this is like like obviously i'm interested in social mobility i was interested in the data but like it was the the methodology that they were using to create it and, and and the way that they had shown their work in and the way that the 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 university shifted in the rankings i thought that was fascinating
2: so that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on monkey.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Monkey Show via Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to our website to find out more about our various subscriptions. So thanks to Sunday, Jenny, Andy, and everyone at Team Monkey that helps make the show happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay Monkey. <music>